I want to talk about when we study anything uh, that is important to us, we want to be precise. So when we think about mathematics, right, some of us were better at math in school than, than others, but in math you have to be precise. If one number is off, if one decimal place is off, then everything else just goes off from there. And so mathematics, hate it or like it, and especially when you get into higher studies, if you mess something up at the beginning, by the end you're going to be way off from where you started. And so you want to be precise in things like mathematics because mathematics help us budget our finances, but also help us understand things like, like aviation. If we didn't have the correct math and, and the correct formulas, we wouldn't be able to get a plane off the ground and we wouldn't be able to keep it in the air. And I don't know about you, but when I fly, I want, I want study that's going to be precise. I want the, the engineering to be on point. I want the math to be on point. I want my pilot to be precise. Because if there's anything that we don't just want to get close with, it's when we put our lives in the hands of this flying block of uh, metal going through the sky. And that's something we want to be precise on. We don't just want to be close with. Mathematics is not something you can just get close to. Medicine is like this as well. Medicine, you're dealing with, with chemistry and you're dealing with, with formulas. If you're not precise, one medicine can turn quickly into something else. Or one diagnosis quickly can turn into something else. These are things we want to be precise with. Something as simple as spelling. As a kid and spelling bees and all those things, there is no such thing as close in spelling. Just like there's no such thing as, as close in mathematics. These are things that are, that are basic. That we, we go through our lives every day being precise on. And is it acceptable in any of these fields or many others to just be close? But the question I want to pose this morning is, as Christians, is it acceptable to just be close? Or is it important that we're precise? This is what John is getting at in this entire introduction. We need to be precise, especially on who Jesus is. Because many Christians take this good enough approach about Jesus. Well, they're talking about Jesus, right? They're talking about a Jesus. Isn't that fine? Is that different than talking about the Jesus? Because John is talking about the Jesus. And many people will ask you, does it really matter? Don't all religions just teach the same thing? Aren't all Jesuses essentially the same? Most people, sadly, who call themselves Christians don't know what they believe. If someone were to put a gun to their head and say, who is Jesus? Tell me now. They may not know how to answer that. And for John, this is definitely important. And for us, this is definitely important. I want us to be people who know who Jesus is. The Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of our own making, not a Jesus of comfort, but a Jesus who is eternal, who is God himself, who is the word became flesh. And he is who is the complete sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of all of creation. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. I want to give you a fair warning here. If you're easily offended, this may offend you. You can probably just stick your fingers in your ears. Or, but if you have some worldly sensibilities, it might be good for you to be offended a little once in a while. The gospel is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because if everything were fine, we wouldn't need the gospel. If we we're fine on our own, if we had it all figured out, what would we need Jesus for? It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. The same reason pain is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Pain is a body's natural reaction to tell you something is wrong, fix this now. And the pain of sin, and the pain of brokenness in the world, and the pain of disappointment is to tell you something is wrong. Fix this now. We're going to look at the solution like we did last week. And we want to be precise. Because we're talking about the founder and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. The only name by which we can be saved. Don't we want to be precise about that? Don't we want to be precise about things that matter for eternity? As much as we want to be precise about our spelling and our grammar. But many of us are more concerned with being precise on all these other secondary matters. Yet are not equipped and prepared to be precise on if Jesus is really who he said he was. If he is really the God of the universe. If he is really the savior of all mankind. It's something we may want to know, right? And this is where I start to get offensive. Because many people and many books claiming to be Christian are speaking about a Jesus that is not the real Jesus. 
Because when someone says, well, doesn't, aren't they all speaking about the same Jesus? Gandhi loved Jesus. Gandhi, definitely not a Christian. Gandhi loved Jesus' teaching. The whole him being God stuff, that, that, was, that was a little bit too much for Gandhi. Muhammad loved Jesus, wrote about, wrote about Jesus who was perfect, who never committed a sin, but who was incomplete because he still required Muhammad. Is that the Jesus of the Bible? This is where some of you Christian bookstore people are going to get a little offended. The Jesus in the shack is not the Jesus of the Bible. As, as a young Christian, I, I read that book. I said, like, oh, this is, this is fun fictional writing. But many people read that as gospel. You do not get your theology from the Christian book stands that are trying to tell you who God is from their time in heaven or their time in some fanciful dream. Who Jesus is comes from scripture. And John knew that errors were going to come because the errors existed in John's day. John is writing this probably within 40 to 50 years of Jesus' death. And already there's all these other heresies saying Jesus is not God. Jesus was not man. John the Baptist is the Messiah. Already within 40 to 50 years, imagine 2,000 years later. And the words that John spoke in this introduction are as true now as they were then. So this morning... We're going to talk about Christology, big seminary word that just means a study of Jesus. And this is going to be Jesus 101. And for many of you, this is elementary, and I know this already, but we need to be reminded over and over and over again. We need to be sure of who Jesus is because everything else hinges on that. Because if you have a different Jesus, you have a different gospel, and you have a different God. So this morning, it will be Christology, Jesus 101. And for many of you, this may be the first time anyone's ever explained this to you. And I'm glad you're here. And for many of you, this is something that you've forgot or you maybe never uh, really considered. And I hope that you do this morning. Because the, the nature of the incarnation, of God incarnate, God in flesh, is so important and must be so precise. It must be like the earth's rotation around the sun. Because a few inches closer and you burn up and, and you explode. A few inches away and you freeze up and you die. The same thing with the incarnation of Christ, because who Jesus is, a few inches to the right or a few inches to the left, you have a different God, a different Jesus, and a different gospel. And this is exactly why John is spending so much time in this introduction. This introduction to the book, the gospel of John, seems so divorced from the rest of the book. What does this have to do with all this stuff I like? I like the miracles, and I like the uh, teaching. I love the Jesus who loves the poor and, and who heals people. That Jesus is nice, but the Jesus that, that's, that's God, that's a little bit much for me. There's a reason John starts here. And there's a reason why you should not read the rest of John until you read this introduction. And every single battle throughout the church history that has really mattered has been over who Christ is and what he has done. And I put a little uh, sheet in your bulletin. We're not going to get into that. I don't have time to get into those, but I don't want it to be a distraction. So read that when you go home. So there's a, there's, thank you. So there's an excerpt from uh, the Athanasian Creed, uh, which basically states the biblical position in concise, clear words. Because for the first few centuries in the church, over and over and over again, they were debating the person and work of Christ. And this morning, we're going to talk about the person, who Jesus is. And that portion of the Athanasian Creed clearly spells out who Jesus is, the significance of the incarnation. And it is all found from teaching in Scripture. We don't put it in place of Scripture, but just like we explain what Scripture says when we come together on Sunday morning, the church has sought to do that throughout history, who Jesus is and what he represents. So that's there. Also beneath that uh, are some of the, the, the heresies that the church addressed early in the years of the church. And again, uh, you can look these up, and there's a lot more to those. There's just a quick, pithy statement on each one. I got that directly from the ESV Study Bible, which is exactly why we recommend it, because they take time to address these things. Because if you look at those, if Jesus is not God, you're talking about someone different. If Jesus is only partly God, you're talking about something different. If Jesus is not man, you're talking about someone different. If Jesus is not fully man, you're talking about someone different. If Jesus is not God and man at the same time, it's something different. And if Jesus is this this, uh, commingled being that is neither God nor man, then you're talking about something different as well. And all those things the church church has fought throughout history, and that is so important. I wish I could get into them, but I won't. If you have questions on it, let me know. 
We'd be happy to talk to you about who Jesus is and these, these different arguments that have gone on throughout history because the church felt the need to protect the identity of Jesus Christ with every fiber of their being. And what I really want to get at today is that if Satan is to gain any ground, the person and work of Jesus Christ has to be undermined. Because in the church, there is a reality that, that our enemies are not the wolves without. It's not the wolves who say there is no God, there is, there, there is no Jesus. The real wolves are the ones calling themselves Christians and claiming a different gospel and a different Jesus. And that is what John is guarding against, and that is what we will guard against. So, after that short introduction, um, let's get to John chapter 1. I'm going to read through the entire introduction that we're going to focus on 14 through 18. So John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you just quiet our minds, quiet our hearts. That you would quiet all the distractions in our mind, all of the daily trials, the weekly struggles, all the things that we have to do, our unfinished to-do list, if you would just block that out of our minds for these next few moments. That you would speak clearly to us. That your spirit would guide me. That your spirit would open eyes that your spirit would bring down the veil, that your spirit would make clear and precise the gospel that is of Jesus Christ and the reality that there is no salvation apart from him, that the God of the universe took on flesh to walk among us, to be like us so that we might be like him. It's the most beautiful news that any ear will ever hear. Just pray this morning that it would be to your honor and your glory and the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ that this text would come alive and it would work mightily in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to go through 14 through 18. We're going to spend most of our time in 14. And I really debated spending the entire message on verse 14. There's so much here. Just to give you a heads up, verse, uh, verse 15, where we're talking about John the Baptist, I'm going to completely skip it. Because the exact text uh, is discussed in two weeks, so I'm not going to spend any more time on him. That will get covered, I promise. But right now, uh, we're going to spend most of our time, all of our time, on who Christ is. Uh, and as you can tell, as we go through the Gospel of John, some of these sections, like verse 15, has parentheses about it, around it in the ESV, and I think that's important. 
Because John, as he's telling the account of Jesus' life, he gives you these little parenthetical side notes. And I think it's important to see that John's train of thought may seem interrupted by that. But John, wanted to, John wants to make sure that he's addressing these, these heresies, and he, he's teaching us along the way. So just to let you know, I'm not ignoring verse 15. We're going to cover that in the next two weeks. Um, so the first thing I want you to see here in verse 14, and the word. I know this was two weeks ago, but you can't forget about this. And this is why I started reading from the beginning. And the word became flesh. The same word that was in the beginning. The same word that was with God and was God became flesh. I should stand here all day until we understand this. If it is not the same word, if it is not the eternal word, if it is not the eternal God who became flesh, the rest of this will make no sense. In the beginning was the word. And that word was with God and the word was God. We can skip right to verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's one thought. And John explains a lot of things along the way, but he wants you to get that. He became, he took on flesh. This is not typical birth language. When you speak of a baby, you don't say a baby took on flesh. Baby was born in flesh, but God, the incarnate word, Took on flesh. It's a voluntary thing. We're going to get to that later on. This is incarnation language. We're going to speak for a few moments about the incarnation because this is so amazing. Because quite honestly, the things that we focus on in Christmas time where it's talking about the incarnation doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. I hate to burst your bubble. It's definitely not about Santa Claus. It's not about a baby in a manger. It's not about ox and lamb and shepherds. It's about God becoming man. It's about the eternal word taking on flesh. That should just blow our minds every time we hear it. That should just humble us with the thought of the creator of all things becoming as we are. And we spent a lot of time in the past couple weeks in Romans talking about the importance of the incarnation. Because we talked about sin coming through the line of Adam. And why is it important that it is a virgin birth? Why is it important that he was birthed through the Holy Spirit? Because if Jesus came into this world as a baby, was not God taking on flesh? If it was between a man and a, a, a woman, natural occurrences, you guys know what happened there. He could not be sinless because sin is transferred through the line of Adam. But yet the virgin birth through the power of the Holy Spirit gave Mary the power and the privilege to conceive. And taking on flesh in that manner preserved both his humanity and his deity. So important. Because if he was born by man and woman, there would be no credit to his deity. But without an earthly father, he could truly represent his heavenly father. Coming through the womb of a virgin girl. But still God. God took on flesh. God who actually dwelt in human flesh. With real muscles, real bones, real breath. This is a question I love to ask. And if I ask you this, there's only one acceptable answer. Is Jesus God or man? Which one is it? My wife knows this stuff, so. Is Jesus God or man? The only acceptable answer is yes. Wait, what do you mean? Because that should just divide human logic. How can it be this and that? And there's this great temptation to put God into our little box. Because I can't understand this. It can't be true. But scripture says it is. Because the same word that was from the beginning with the Father, before the creation of the heaven and the earth, he ate, he drank, he slept, and he cried. Sounds like most people I know. Maybe not in that order, but yes. The word became flesh. And he was still God. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. And this defies human reason, and it should. This should not make earthly sense to us. This is not an earthly truth. Because if all there is is a stuff we can see and touch, then yeah, it should make sense. But if there is something beyond us, if there is something greater than us, if there is something more amazing than us, maybe it may not fit into our little brains. And maybe it only takes faith to fully understand it. That's the point. Because faith is a radical thing. Because it makes you understand things that 
are called mysteries throughout the gospel, but are made plain so that even a child could understand it. And this should never, ever cease to amaze us. Uh, before we get into our text, this text you, you probably should know. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Whenever we think of the incarnation, we should go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 5. I'm going to go through a lot of verses this morning, but they'll all be in the New Testament, so hopefully you'll be able to follow along. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. When Paul is speaking of, of this, listen to the language he uses. It's in complete agreement with John. Have this in mind among yourselves, Philippians 2.5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. This is voluntary language. When people try to accuse God and say, why would God kill his only son? It's patricide. No. Christ emptied himself. This is voluntary language. This is what love looks like. Coming off the throne, saying, I am God from all eternity, but I'm going to empty myself for you. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, also again voluntary. This is not an arrogant act. If anyone should be arrogant, it is the creator of the universe. But he humbled himself to take on flesh and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Somebody. This is the gospel. This is the God of the universe, the word becoming flesh, humbling himself, being obedient so that God may be glorified. This is important. Because when John speaks of Jesus' glory, as we read earlier in Isaiah 42, God shares his glory with no one else. And it is the glory of God is attributed to Christ. Because if he is not God, that is blasphemous. And that is offensive to God. And anyone who declares Jesus should receive glory should be struck down. Unless he really is God. Then anything but glory is blasphemous. So now understanding, hopefully, and I wish we could spend more time on this. The incarnation, God becoming flesh. What is gained by the incarnation? Why is this important? First... It fulfills the prophecies throughout the Old Testament. Emmanuel, God with us. God did for us what we could not do for him for ourselves. God in the Son came to supply what he demands. So first of all, it's on a mere base level. This is something everyone agrees with. If you look at all the different cults that claim to be Christian, they all agree with this. That Jesus came to be an example. That we would see what it is like to follow God. And that is exactly true. But it does not stop there. Jesus had to come and sympathize with us and live like we live. And live in every way but not, live and be tempted in every way but not sin. He could not fully be our representative if he did not live as we live. He could not represent us if he was not faced with every temptation that faces humankind. He became our representative, and in place of Adam, the representative of a new humanity, the kingdom of God come to earth. This is what is gained by the incarnation, and most importantly, he could not die for sins unless he lived first. There must be a sacrifice for sin because of God's justice. And the question that follows very often to this, and you may get this very often, is why didn't God just uh, forgive sins from on high? Why doesn't he just proclaim it? He, I think many of us want, many people, I'm not going to say us, I won't, I won't do that to you. Many people want God to be like Oprah, and you get forgiven, and you get forgiven. I think Oprah wants God to be like Oprah. And everyone's forgiven, why not? Because our God is just. And if you understand who God is, he is perfectly holy. Every sin is an offense to God. And is punishable by death and deserves death. 
Our God is not capricious. Our God does not just throw around his, his judgment in, in whatever whim he's in at the moment. Every sin must be punished. And that's why he couldn't just forgive sins from on, on high. Because he would not be a just judge. A judge who lets a murderer go free is not a good judge or a just judge. Maybe merciful, but he's not just. Every sin must be paid for. So because he loved us, those who trust and believe in him no longer bear the weight of paying for our own sins. He sent the perfect sacrifice. Because only man could stand as a, as a representative for man. Only man could bear the penalty for the sins that man deserved. That's why Jesus had to take on flesh. That's why he had to walk and eat and sleep and die. Because a man had to take on what man offended God with. But also, because of God, because God is just. The full measure of his wrath had to be poured out on sin. And only God could withstand the wrath of God. If Jesus is not man and is not God, there is no forgiveness of sins, point blank. There is no reconciliation with God because God is unwavering in his justice. But because God is unwavering in his mercy, he sent his son. Because God loved us so much that he would put the penalty for what we've done on the back of his son. Send him to the grave for us. Raise him again in three days so that we might live with him. That is why the incarnation is important. That's what benefit we get from it. Because a mere human could not bear the wrath of God. And a simple God could not relate to humanity. But in God's perfection, his amazing plan, he brings the two together seamlessly in the person of Jesus Christ. We good? We're only like three words in. We're going to move a lot faster than that, I hope. Um, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt literally means tabernacled or pitch a, a, a tent. If any of you who understand the Old Testament, um, the, the, the tabernacle was this temporary structure in the wilderness. Coming out of slavery before the promised land. This should start to um, resonate a theme with you here. The tabernacle was where God's very presence and glory dwelt. Are the, are the gears working? The tabernacle was the center of life for Israel. The tabernacle was where the place where God met men. The tabernacle was the place where the, 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 the priest served in worship of God. The tabernacle was where the law was preserved. The tabernacle was where sacrifices were offered. The tabernacle is where worship was directed. The tabernacle. The word tabernacled among us. The tabernacle of God. That was this beacon in the midst of the wilderness. Before the promised land. Something temporary. To point us to Jesus in his earthly body, which is something temporary. And one day, something that is permanent. The temple is indicative of Jesus' second return. I wish I could get into that, but I can't. But I want you to see that the, that, um, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us is to point to everything that Israel was looking for as their identity in the center of their worship and life. All in Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. This is a very visible, literal scene. The disciples saw the glory of God. When they saw Jesus, they saw the glory of God on full display. Unequivocally. And as we saw earlier, and I just mentioned, Isaiah 42 says, I am God and my glory I give to no other. It also says it in Isaiah 48. If John says that they saw God, and they gave glory to someone who was not God. John is a heretic. We should not follow him. We should not listen to him. We should close the book and go home. But he gave glory. Where glory was due. God himself taking on flesh. Glory as of the only son from the father. Only son. Um, usually in many older translations, the word begat is there or the, the only begotten son. Many people are comfortable with that and 
going to make you uncomfortable again. Uh, that is a word that doesn't really carry the same meaning in, in our culture as, as it did in a kind of King James context. And this has led a lot of heretics astray. Because when you look at the King James and you look at all these lists of genealogies, there's Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Joseph. Well, this is, this is birth language. This is just talking about human birth. This is normal birth processes. But in the Greek, the monogenes, it's, 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 it's this only unique um, re- relationship between, between God and Jesus. There, there is no other. It is unique. Nothing else can be com- compared to it. So that's why the only son here is a helpful translation. The only born of the father in this way. And don't get distorted with some kind of biological conversation. This is not a regular birth narrative. This is more relational. As a son relates to a father perfectly, as the, as the heavenly father relates to the son. The first person of the Trinity relates to the second person of the Trinity. This is relational language, not biological language. As the only son, the only unique son, full uh, from the father, full of grace and truth. There is no other son who is attributed this type of language, full of grace and truth. He is full, complete in all things, and complete in grace and truth, the foundation of our faith. This is what sets us apart, grace and truth. We claim as Christians the only source of grace, the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, fully in Christ, full of grace. This is not in debate. We also claim the only source of truth. And in a culture that hates absolutes, this makes people uncomfortable. But if it's not, if it's up for debate, we should go home. I'm wasting my time and you are. But if grace is fully found in Christ and truth is fully found in Christ, where else can we go? Because if your Jesus is not full of grace, it's not the source of truth, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And if someone comes to you with a different Jesus who does not save, And who does not offer the only way, it is a different Jesus. And the thought follows naturally to verse 16. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is beautiful language. From out of his fullness in the Greek, literally, from out of Christ... Grace can only come from him. He is so absolutely full of grace and truth. He is enough to supply us unending grace upon unending grace upon unending grace. Before I get to grace, I want to look at his fullness for a moment. Turn to Colossians for me. After doing a little study this week, I think the theme of Colossians should be the fullness of Christ. We looked at Colossians 1 a couple weeks ago. When we're in verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But skip down to verse 19. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It was a pleasing thing. There's no lack in him. Complete and full. In him was the fullness of God pleased to dwell. But we don't stop there. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things... There is no reconciliation apart from Christ. There is no knowing God apart from Christ, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Remember what I talked about earlier, that perfect sacrifice? Only the fullness of God, only full humanity could reconcile all things through the cross. This is so important. This is the gospel. Anything apart from this is a different Christ and a different religion. It should be called out as such, and I will in a moment. You guys are going to like this. Um, Turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse uh, 8. And some of you may say, well, Tim, you're getting really bent out of shape about this. You're getting really worked up. It's really not that important. I know you still need to be precise about Jesus, but I think uh, you're just making a big deal out of this. What is Paul's concern here? In the early church and still today in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. 
Paul has concern for his people that are being led astray by false teaching and not according to Christ. And in case you forgot what that meant, look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority? This is powerful language and this should be encouragement to believers. So when we think about our, the grace that we receive coming out of his fullness, and he is the fullness of all authority and the fullness of the, the, the deity of God. He is God himself, and we receive grace from him. How comforting should that grace be? Grace upon grace. This language in the Greek is hard to express in English, but it's kind of like God gave you grace. And he traded it for more grace. And when you mess that up, he traded it for more grace. And it is a perpetual giving of, of grace, which is such an encouragement to sinners like us. Because in Christ, every time you sin, grace. If you trusted and believe in Christ, grace. You walk out here and you lust, grace. You walk out here and you curse because someone cuts you off in traffic, grace. You get in a fight on the way home with your family, grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Because our Savior is full of grace and there is no lack in him. That's why who Jesus is is so important. So I'm going to get honest for a moment. The, the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses does not have that grace. If you're a created being who is limited in power and authority, you don't have enough grace to forgive like that. The Jesus of Seventh-day Adventist doesn't have that kind of forgiveness because they're still trying to earn it. Every time they, they sin, his grace is not enough. The Jesus of, of, of Mormonism is, is still trying to earn his godhood. But you can walk right across the street and ask a Mormon person about Jesus. They'd be happy to talk to you. And they will say all the same words we do. Son of God, grace, salvation. When you get to what that really means, it's this bastardized version of celestial sex between God and Mary that, that, that brought Jesus into being, hoping to become God himself so that we can become gods ourselves and have our own planet and have sex for eternity. That's the nonsense that they are teaching and calling it Christianity. That is a different Jesus and you should recognize that. The Jesus of Judaism, false teacher that's leading people astray. The Messiah has not yet come. It is just as blasphemous and it is just as ridiculous. That Jesus has no bearing whatsoever. If you trust in a God but don't recognize God in flesh, you don't know that God at all. And many Christians who believe that they must save themselves and they, they must maintain their salvation and that God cannot be pleased with them until they, they work up to a certain level of holiness on their own. That is a different Jesus. Because if that is not, if Jesus' grace is not enough for your sins, what did he do? What did he accomplish? If you're still trying to save yourself, that is a different Jesus. He is so full of grace. Grace enough. It's, it's amazing that Jesus is grace enough for my sins. But let alone yours and everyone else who's ever trusted in him. Don't think you can be forgiven. Don't think that you've done, you think that you've done something so bad that Christ's grace can't cover you. You don't know Jesus. His grace is enough for your sins. Yes, yours. But like we talked about on Wednesday night. Looking at Romans 6, don't presume on that, on, on that grace and continue to sin and, and therefore offend God. Just a side note on that, we won't get into that. So I want to tell you a little, uh, a little story. Uh, the, the, the name, I had an interaction with a guy this week. The name of this gentleman will be protected, uh, will, will be changed to protect the guilty. We'll call him Vinny. Um, Vinny came to inspect our, our windows th this week. Uh, and Vinny is every Italian stereotype that is, that is out there. Vinny was Sicilian to the hilt. I think he got the Italian flag on everything. I didn't see his socks, but I'm, I'm sure it was there. And Vinny was everything that you think an Italian should be. He was about this tall and about this wide, uh, and chest hair sticking out, and just came in, had a, had a great time with him. The guy was really entertaining. 
And he looked on the uh, paperwork. He sees my last name. He sees all the vowels. And he finds out that I'm Italian. And so now we speak this, this, this common language. And soon the uh, four-letter words begin to fly. Because if you're Italian, there, there, there are two Fs that you're really passionate about. Food and the other F. You know, at least he got one out of two. I do like food as well. I'm just, I'm, I'm just kidding. So he began to go on these, 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 these tirades and just, and it was, it was so like just beautifully laced into every sentence that you could tell this was a daily practice for him. And so I listened and I laughed and you know, as he's finishing up, we get to the door and he said, hey, so what do you do for a living? And so I said, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And his whole countenance changed. He was like, Man, you know, you couldn't have told me 20 minutes ago and for him, it was this embarrassment that I'm cursing in front of pastor. But then there is a point to the story. But then he does something different. He, he, he looks at me, kind of straightens up again and kind of pats his wall. He says, let, let, let me tell you a story about a pastor. Um, my father and I did a concrete job for this guy, an Italian doing concrete. Yeah, go, go figure. And this pastor gets his whole basement poured. This is up north. Again, an Italian from up north. Go figure. Uh, and they do this $30,000 concrete job. And they call him to collect payment. He doesn't answer. They call him again. He doesn't answer. They call him again. He doesn't answer. They get lawyers involved, put a lien on his house. And only when they threaten to foreclose does his attorney get a call. They say, here's your check for 30000 and so sad to me because his only two references for a Christian or for a pastor, for that matter, watch your mouth and watch your money. This a guy probably never been in a church. So everything he has to know about Christians was based on that one pastor. And it broke my heart to think about what stereotype has been cast for us. And let's be honest, Christians cast these stereotypes. Because if we are full of grace and truth, shouldn't we reflect that? We talked about that, that mirror analogy last week. If we've been shown grace, and we stand on the foundation of truth that is Jesus Christ, shouldn't we be known for that? I don't even blame, blame him for feeling that, that way. If someone tried to stiff, calling himself a pastor and try to stiff me on, on 30 grand, I'd probably feel the same way. I think that's something to be so careful of because we have contributed to these stereotypes. Are we known as people who are full of grace and truth from Jesus Christ? Are we? Or are we like the rest of the world likes to see us? Petty, just like us. Judgmental, legalistic. Presuming upon the grace of Christ. All right, let's, let's bring this home. Uh, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. This is the first time he mentioned Jesus by name. But everything else he was talking about, these first 16 verses are talking about Jesus. We can't divorce the rest from here where Jesus' name gets introduced. Because now he's calling on him by name. He just finished talking about how Jesus was superior to John the Baptist. And this would get all of the Jews uncomfortable. He's superior to Moses. But look at this. For from, uh, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a covenant transition. Through Moses, the law came on the mount, on, on Mount Sinai. God's just requirements for His people, God's justice on full display. This is what I require through Moses, but grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. This is a transition in covenant agents from Moses to Christ and, and its re- requirements. Both of these covenants, the law, the Ten Commandments given to Moses, and the covenant made in Christ's blood made God known, but only one made God known in fullness. Because the law of Moses was great. It showed us who God was, but it was incomplete. Jesus came to fulfill the law and all of the prophets. There's another great connection here that may be missed. Moses One of the most admirable requests of God that has ever been made. Moses stands up on Mount Sinai and says, God, let me see your glory. Jesus came to earth as the fullness of the glory of God, which the disciples saw. What Moses longed to see, they saw. 
What Moses didn't know that he was asking was that one day, through Christ, we would all see God's glory, whoever is in him. And Christ is the fullness of both of these covenants, the justice of the law fulfilled in him, and the mercy, the forgiveness of sins that came through his blood. God's justice and mercy, holy and fully in full display in Christ. Grace and truth. Through Christ, we get redemption and we get revelation. This is the basis of the entire Christian faith, redemption and revelation. Redemption being reconciled to God and revelation being the truth from God's very mouth himself. God breathed into scripture. Grace and truth. The two things we benefit most from and the two things that make people really uncomfortable. Because if you you tell someone, I have the truth, it's not my truth. God declares what is true, that makes someone really uncomfortable. And if you say that God has enough grace for sin and there is nothing you can do to earn it, you must only believe, that makes people really uncomfortable. Because deep down, let's be honest, we actually like law. We like the law. We we, We like when someone says, do this and you get this. I know what to expect if I have to follow directions. Okay, I didn't follow your directions. My bad. I'm the one who's responsible for it. But to stand on truth and trust in grace through faith, that is hard. That is really hard to say. There is nothing I can do to save myself, and I must trust in the one who can. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given by God, given to Moses. Jesus came full of grace and truth. So when God gave to Moses, God came as Jesus. And no one has ever seen God, verse 18. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came to make God known. Without Jesus, you cannot know God. And how can he do this? Well, Moses asked to see God's face. He could not. Jesus is at the Father's side, in his very bosom, face to face with him, this intimate relationship between Father and Son throughout all of eternity. How can Jesus make God known because he is God? Because he knows the Father so intimately, he can't help but reflect his glory while on earth. No one has ever seen God, the only God. The same word again, monogenes, the only God. This unique this u- unique. Um, eternal relationship between father and son who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Only God can make himself known and only man can truly relate to man. Again, Jesus had to be fully God and had to be fully man. And he doesn't want you to just know God intellectually, not just some ideas about God, but relationally, really know him. Jesus' prayer for his disciples that you and, I, you and I would be one the way me and the Father are one. We want this intimate relationship that we've had throughout all of eternity. I want that for you. I want to make God known in such a way that those who love him, their hearts will be stirred in affection. And make him known in such a way that those who reject him will be without excuse. This is the light of the world shining in the darkness, making God known. When we speak, that's why this word, word is, is so important. We don't think about the words we use, but every time we speak, every word we use, we tell people more about us. When I speak to you, when you speak to me, we learn about each other. And what you choose to communicate will determine how other people view you. And like Christ, what we speak about becomes a witness of what we represent of who we are, the words that we use. Are the words that we use full of grace and truth? Are they reflective of the Son who reflects the Father? Do our words build up or do they destroy? Do we know the one true God? Are our words filled with truth or are they filled with opinion? Do we seek to please God or do we seek to please man with our words? And Are we concerned with making the living God known? The glory God himself. I want to close with this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This sums up greatly what we've been talking about this morning. This is an encouragement from Paul for those who are in ministry. Second Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 1 and go through six verses. 
and then we'll finish up. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This is great encouragement to the believer. Any ministry is by the mercy of God. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Very important. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Again, just to reiterate, through Jesus is not man, and he is not God. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. If he wasn't born, he didn't die for sins, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. If his sacrifice was not complete, is not the Jesus of the Bible. If there's any other way to salvation, is not the Jesus of the Bible. What you believe about Jesus matters. It is the very glory of God we're talking about here. And on that, we want to be as careful and as precise as possible. And we want to proclaim it, because not of ourselves, but for his glory. There's no grace and truth apart from him. There's no knowing God apart from him. John wants you to know who Jesus is and trust and believe in him. I want you to know who Jesus is and trust and believe in him. And I want you to be people who know who Jesus is and trust and believe in him, who can tell other people who Jesus is so they can trust and believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what to say that has not already been said. There's nothing that can come out of my mouth that will ever give honor due you. Your glory is beyond my speech. My words fail me. Our songs fail us. Let us rejoice in the mystery that God took on flesh. Let us rejoice in the mystery that you would love us so much. When we hated you, you send your son for us. Your love on full display on the cross. That through Jesus, we can be full of grace and truth out of his fullness. And that we might know God through him. This is a good news all the world needs to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.